Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Tuesday, May 16th, 2023, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And the Durham Report. Oh, no. No, he's not going to talk about this. You're saying, well, I read it. I won't bore you with it all. It's about 300 pages, but there are a lot of footnotes. And a lot of it was him re-arguing cases he lost in court. I did a little skimming of those sections. But there is a, an underlying point that I feel, I really feel compelled to make. It brings me no joy because I think the takeaway of the Durham report is ah, another smokescreen, fake news, all so very fake. This is not new. We know this. But just because it's not new to you doesn't mean it's not new to a lot of the audience, the audience of the very outlets claiming it's not news. And what I want so badly in this Trump Russiagate analysis coverage is a fair broker. I don't have one. I don't have one in any of the major newspapers. They all got substantial parts of this wrong. The networks, same thing. There are one or two voices out there that I trust on this, but they're not issuing the first order reports on the Durham report. Wall Street Journal was pretty good. There, the reporters Aruna Viswanatha and Sadie German nail it. Quote, the report describes senior FBI officials as unusually involved in aggressively pushing the Trump-Russia investigation forward as the inspector general's prior inquiry has found. That's good. That's a good sentence. That's what the report says. It notes that another report said this too. Maybe you hadn't read the inspector general's report. The Wall Street Journal also goes on saying this is important context. Mr. Trump once predicted that Mr. Durham's probe would reveal the crime of the century, a conspiracy among intelligence officials and law enforcement to undermine his 2016 presidential campaign. The probe's findings have fallen far short of that expectation. Indeed, they have. Then it is important to note, but I think we're taking the failure to be a blockbuster as if there is absolutely nothing to be learned. I know for a fact that many people don't actually know one of the things that is seen as not new. So to take a survey of some of the other coverage, Washington Post was pretty good, but it's hard to credit much of the Post's main coverage when the other articles in the Washington Post that are getting more play as judged by the most read and most read in politics sidebars. There's a headline, the Durham report fails to meet William Barr's hype. Indeed it does. There's a report by Philip Bump, or analysis by Philip Bump, which is overall good, but you get the tone of it. Durham's probe ends as it began, pointing at trees to obscure the forest. I don't think we can hold it to the standard of, did it deliver a death blow? Did it deliver full vindication? Did it deliver or confirm a wildly implausible, if not impossible, narrative as advanced by Donald Trump? Here's the New York Times. Durham slams FBI as biased in Trump case, and this, eh, let's call it a nut graph, nut sentence, epitomizes what we should know about it. Mr. Durham's 306-page report revealed little substantial new information about the inquiry known as Crossfire Hurricane, and it failed to produce the kinds of blockbuster revelations impugning the Bureau of Politically Motivated Misconduct. 
that Donald Trump suggested. True, true, didn't get there, didn't deliver on Donald Trump's wildest claims, though he will claim it did. Okay, nothing new, nothing learned. Only the odd thing is, what has been supposedly absorbed into our collective understanding, I do not believe it actually has been absorbed. So I ask you, the Steele dossier, remember that one? Was it important to this overall investigation? Also, was it accurate? What do you think about the accuracy of the Steele dossier? Was it discredited? Was it largely discredited? Was it largely accurate? You know, let's take apart the P-tape, okay? Was most of the Steele dossier A, true, and B, important? All right, here's the answer. It was important to the investigation. The investigation wasn't opened because of it, but the investigation continued on because it was cited to re-up the warrant. I know, I know, the FISA warrant and the Inspector General and the Mueller report. Your eyes may be glazing over, you may be chafing at this, but that is the truth. It was pretty important. And another way that it was really important is its existence drove Donald Trump crazy. And that is why he fired Comey. And that is why the Mueller investigation was launched. All right. So it was pretty important. Did Donald Trump lie about the whole thing being a witch hunt and anything about total exoneration, especially about Obama tapping him in Trump Tower? All a lie, all an exaggeration. But what I said about the Steele dossier, important and seen as credible, that is true. I do not think that most people know the truth about the Steele dossier, which is that it is now known to be inaccurate. In the most important ways, it is inaccurate. And I'm not even sure that most people, I don't mean you and I, but I mean someone you know, someone you love, someone who you regard as informed. I don't know that they would flat out say Donald Trump was not a Russian asset. But guess what? Donald Trump was not a Russian asset. Donald Trump did not work for Russia. It just was not true. And the Steele dossier, which drove Trump crazy because it was uncorroborated and terribly inaccurate, was in fact terribly inaccurate. And I remember thinking otherwise. And I remember saying otherwise. I was relying on reports which carefully said that Well, we know the Steele dossier hasn't been fully corroborated, but large parts have been corroborated. Here's the New Yorker. Uh, In the weeks that followed the publication of the dossier, they, intelligence officials, confirmed some of its less explosive claims relating to conversations with foreign nationals. Quote, they are continuing to chase down stuff from the dossier, and at its core, a lot of it is bearing out, an intelligence official said. CNN, U.S. investigators corroborate some aspects of the Russia dossier. And the hosts of CNN made this point, actually, an exaggerated version of this already largely inaccurate point. And sometimes they did so in direct rebuttals to Republican officials. CNN anchor Don Lemon in November of 2017. Listen, so we haven't reported here on CNN the salacious details of that dossier, but much of the dossier has been corroborated. CNN host Allison Camerata, in an interview with Jim Jordan, Your intel community has corroborated all of the details in there. John Seifer, a 28-year veteran of the CIA, re-examined the accuracy of the dossier and said on the usually solid website, Just Security, that he had a favorable assessment of its accuracy. He wrote that a portion of it, in fact, a large portion, quote, is crystal clear, certain, consistent, and corroborated. The essay was reprinted in other publications with the tagline, how much of the infamous document ended up being corroborated elsewhere? A whole lot. 
The dossier was widely credited, and now we know it shouldn't have been. But we move the goalposts or chalk up that fairly important opportunity for correction as, oh, there's nothing new to be learned here. And it's very discrediting for most of the media. That Alison Camerata quote, as I said, was right at Jim Jordan, right to him, whose staff or whose fans and supporters really thought then that she was wrong. And guess what? She was wrong. So if we bemoan the idea that no amount of information can ever correct the misimpressions of those in the thrall to glib, fast-talking Jim Jordan, well, a kind of huge inaccuracy like that counteracts, I don't know, 100, every other careful enunciation of an actual truth. Some in the media have been good about owning up. Eric Wemple of the Washington Post did a multi-part series about this. You should check it out if you want to spend a lot of time. If you want to spend a little time, go to Axios. That's their whole raison d'etre. Sarah Fisher wrote a column titled, The Media's Epic Fail. She writes with a typically axionic flair, why it matters. It's one of the most egregious journalistic errors in modern history, and the media's response to its own mistakes has so far been tepid. That was written a year and a half ago. It still is tepid. It still is calling another opportunity to right the wrongs, correct the record, instill in the public an accurate assessment of what happened. That is still being used to say nothing new, nothing to be seen here. Now, absolutely, it's sad that the opportunity for a correction is the imperfect vessel of the Durham report, which engages in a lot of tendentious arguments that just don't get there. To name one, he spends a lot of time bemoaning the fact that the FBI informed Hillary Clinton she might be the target of Russian infiltration, but didn't give then-candidate Trump a defensive briefing. Inexplicable, except Durham fails to consider uh, that's because Hillary Clinton was the victim of a possible Russian infiltration, whereas it could very well have been the case that Trump was the beneficiary of Russian infiltration. I believe then, as I do now, having read the 300-page report, that the investigation, Operation Crossfire Hurricane, was warranted, was properly predicated to quote Durham, quoting FBI Deputy General Counsel Tricia Anderson, It would have been a dereliction of duty had the FBI not opened Crossfire Hurricane. By the way, Durham actually believes it was properly predicated too, right? Back a couple months ago, he said otherwise. He criticized the Inspector General's report as not going far enough, as not saying it was improperly predicated. But now in this report, Durham says the same thing. I will quote, as an initial matter, There is no question that the FBI had an affirmative obligation to closely examine the paragraph five information is the end of that quote, which means the strong allegation advanced by the Australian government that there might have been spies or Russian assets in the Trump campaign. That's new, by the way, Durham saying that is new. So it's not true that there is nothing new. It is true that what's old hat is an adherence to a set of beliefs that No amount of accurate reporting can seem to dislodge, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. On the show today, the piece of most obscure art that I regularly engage with, but first and relatedly, basketball playoffs are in the air, in our hearts, in our arts. It is, in fact, with the opening of a new play called King James in Manhattan, not the English king who translated the Bible 500 years ago. He didn't do it. They did it on his behalf. We're talking about LeBron James and a friendship based around a passion for the Cleveland Cavaliers 
It is quite good. I saw it in previews. It opens tonight. The playwright, Rajiv Joseph, joins me next to talk about making art about sports, male friendship, and LeBron James. Rajiv Joseph up next. You know what it is? You know what it boils down to ultimately? is the question of legacy, which maybe it matters, maybe it doesn't. It matters to him, and he just squandered it. The Cavs didn't give him a team. Yes, they did. Seven years, and the best teammate he got was Zadrunas Elgowskis. Oh. And all respect to Z, you know I love Z, but that is a travesty. I would leave too if I were LeBron. If LeBron wants to peace out, fine. But don't go on primetime TV with Jim motherfucking Gray and talk about talents and South Beach. He could have done it more subdued. Taken out a page in the paper, written his thanks to Cleveland, and quietly fucked off. People would still hate him. But not as much. Not as much. Which takes us back to the question of legacy. What question? You know who would have never done this? You know who would have never, ever, ever, ever done this? Oh, come on. Jordan! <laughs> Jordan had Pippen. King James is a new play being mounted, listen to me, mounted, at the Manhattan Theater Club. It is written, the playwright is Rajiv Joseph, who was a Pulitzer finalist for Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. The new play, King James, is what they call a two-hander. The actors are excellent. And the theme was right up my alley, or in the lane, or in the in my sweet spot. It was about two Clevelanders' love of basketball and how these two men used it to inform and craft a relationship that spans the years. Rajiv Joseph, welcome to The Gist. Mike, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So as I look at you, you're wearing the Cleveland Guardians shirt. I read about you. I know that you wrote the uh, film Draft Day, or you were one of the credited screenwriters on that. Cleveland Browns epic slash fever dream. So <laughs> I don't have to ask you if you're a Cleveland Cavaliers fan, but how big a Cleveland Cavaliers fan are you? I'm a huge Cleveland sports fan um, across the middle, and I grew up watching all these teams, I think, in Cleveland uh, we sort of live and die by our teams, as a lot of cities do. And, um, you know, and for us, that was a lot of heartbreak. And um, for me, a lot of things to write about. Yeah. And I had a friend who wrote a book called The Whore of Akron after LeBron James <laughs> left. A little harsh, but it does get to the feeling at the time. So where were, where were you, if you were being honest, or if we had check-ins with you at all the milestones of LeBron's career, getting drafted, rookie of the year, the announcement uh, that he was taking his talents to South Beach, the championships, the return, the leaving again, at your nadir, how much did you <laughs> resent LeBron? James. Oh, I was really angry. You know, I, I was, I was so upset when he, when the decision happened, I hated him. I wished him nothing but ill will. And the following year when the Dallas Mavericks and Dirk Nowitzki beat the heat in the finals, it was till that point, the closest I felt to actually winning a championship because Cleveland at that point had never won one in my lifetime. And when Nowitzki and the, and the Mavs won, I was rejoicing in the streets, you know, just so happy. Um, I will say, um, and most people won't believe it when I say it, but in his last year at Miami, LeBron's last year, I flipped on him and I, I started loving him again. And I think it was a kind of a choice of saying, this guy is just too good to hate too much. Cause it's just in making basketball, not fun to hate yeah. somebody who's so great. And I started liking him again. I started cheering for him again. And then I had the good fortune of him coming back to my city in Cleveland and, uh, and actually winning the sole championship of my lifetime there. 
So as uh, an intelligent person, a self-reflective person, and someone who for a living is a chronicler of the human condition, (laughs) do you recognize in yourself, or at the time, were you engaging in self-reflection saying, you know, these are interesting and complex feelings that maybe there's some dramatic potential for? Yes. I mean, as I became, I think, a more... (laughs) reflexive reflective person i started thinking about my relationship to sports which is absurd and irrational and i think a lot of people who are fans who are fanatics about the sport feel the same i mean or maybe they're not aware of how irrational it is but especially with lebron and his longevity and what he has meant to cleveland both in the ins and outs and the ups and downs in his last stretch in cleveland i started really realizing what a impact what a presence he's been in my life. And I started thinking about that. I mean, he came into the league when I was in graduate school. I had never even written a play or a screenplay yet. And, um, and so, and in many ways, like, I feel like my career has been in lockstep with his um, to a much smaller degree. But, you know, I, I can't imagine, you know, my sports life without him at this point. And, and coming to terms with that, the passage of time makes me think very philosophically about what he and what athletes and sports mean to me as a person. Yeah, and the two characters in your play, Sean, who is a screenwriter, and Matt, who's a Cleveland native, they have versions of all of these feelings and maybe some others. I mean, I sense that to some extent, and they flip-flop and change a little bit, but maybe it's the case that some were giving voice to what you recognize would be a logical counter-argument or would be the stone that would sharpen the steel of an argument that you were having about how important sports are or how to judge LeBron James. You're trying to, and we'll get to some of the other aspects, but I think you were trying to make a really good, complex argument about LeBron as a person, the importance of sports, and something about bonding to people you'll never even meet. Yeah, I think sports, you know, at its in its forefront brings people together. You know, it's an easy conversation point for people who are fans. You can meet a guy on the subway or in a bar, you know, on an airplane. And if you share an enthusiasm for a particular sport, you immediately have a lot to talk about. And you can immediately bond over that or you can get into some kind of heated arguments about that. And I yeah. think it's those heated arguments that I find so interesting because, you know, they start jokingly enough, but... If anyone's ever been in one, especially with friends or strangers, you realize that you can really start to form an opinion about somebody if they don't agree with exactly what you're saying in terms of sports. And um, I find that, again, irrational and fun and also curious. And, you know, I think that in the case of the characters in my play, Matt and Sean, um, I had this idea as I was writing the play that I think had been dormant in my mind a long time, which is that. I think certain young men especially, but maybe men of all stripes and women too, but I think especially young men in this country have a difficult time expressing themselves emotionally to one another, but they are able to do so with the language or the code of sports. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's okay to have sports feelings, whereas re-feel, real feelings are still a little alien to us. And all the research shows that men do the side-by-side bonding, right? The shoulder-to-shoulder uh-huh. bonding while yeah. watching something else as opposed to women who do the face-to-face bonding. And then in this relationship between your particular characters, and I have to compliment you because I thought it was fair and well done. One is white, one is black. And, you know, they're talking about the often controversial to them and to the world actions of a black sport 
sports star. And that gives rise to, I thought, a very fairly constructed debate that had, that was about race, essentially. Um, So my question there is, did you always know you wanted to have a black character and a white character and have race enter into this? You couldn't really have a fair discussion about LeBron James and his relationship to Cleveland without having a big racial element. So I didn't always know that. But the reason I didn't always know that is because I'm not so thoughtful of a person. You know, like I I enter into these ideas for plays as like almost on whims, you know, like I like sports. I like LeBron. He's been something to me. I think that there's something here. Let me start to write a play about it. But then as I then focus and as I dig into what it actually means to be a sportsman, what it means to be a Clevelander, his our relationship with LeBron. The issue and the, the, the you know, the, the idea of race and racial tensions is unavoidable because of because of the ups and downs he's had with the city. When he left, there was understandable <clears throat> anger at him. But then there was, as so often has and happens in this day and age, um, understandable anger immediately just gets corrupted into racial um, energy that is gross. And and some of it's really all over the top, but a lot of it's under the under the surface, you know, right. and, the, and the comments and the criticism of LeBron when he left. Um, I think a lot of it was racially coded. And I think a lot of it really you, you, you could you could decipher all of that that rhetoric and come to some really ugly and illuminating um, realizations about the culture in which we live. Yeah. And now it's interesting Sean, the uh, black screenwriter character, was more upset at the decision, the decision, the decision to leave. I mean, he was, he was heartbroken. He was angry. Right. But then years later, it curdled in uh, Matt, the white character, into something that took on this ugly, but not so blatant that even he could recognize it, racial tinge. A great, I think a great choice artistically. And I do also think that it was a very fair conversation. You didn't make Matt out, you didn't betray the character and make him out to be a monster. You had him so he couldn't even recognize perhaps what he was saying. He still had saving graces to show he wasn't a racist or a bigot, but it was there, like it's always there. And so uh, my question is, when you figured that out or unlocked it, did you know what you had? Yeah, I mean, and that that kind of came out within a workshop setting, you know, which in, mm. when you're a playwright, you if, if you're lucky, you know, you get opportunities to develop your work with different uh, programs and groups and theaters. And although this was this was a commission with Steppenwolf Theater Company in Chicago and the Center Theater Group in L.A., we had this opportunity to go to um, an organization called New Harmony. Uh, New Harmony Play Development in Indiana in the summer. They do a month-long residency for a bunch of writers and and actors. And we spent a week developing the play there. And that's when the real idea started to crystallize in this play. And I remember having a discussion with the actors um, and the director at the time, um, discussing, like, suddenly realizing, wow, do I want to go here? Do I want to get into this? This wasn't what this was supposed to be about. And everyone was like, you, if, if it's even on your radar, you have to go for it. And, right. and I sat down that night and I remember really thinking about it and being like, it was one of those realizations that I think writers often have mid process where they suddenly realize what they're writing about. And um, for me, that always happens sort of mid process. 
Now, did you want the debate to be a fair and honest one so that different audience members could see the side of each character. You know, a lot of playwrights want to debate an issue, and you just told me how you got there. So, you know, David Mamet will write Oleana, and I guess he'll think it's fair, but almost everyone who saw it, well, (laughs) maybe I'm wrong, but I think almost everyone who saw it thought that the thumb was on the scale for one side of that debate, or the play art. Like, all these debate plays are different levels of fairness, and the playwright always says, well, I think it's fair, and then the audience is have uh, a different take on it. But was that at least your motivation for how you crafted this debate? I just feel that, I don't know if I thought about it in terms of a debate so much as I think about, you know, the seamlessness of a story. And I think as soon as an audience might feel they're being preached to or told the idea to think, the record skips and they're taken out of the piece. And so my objective in everything I write is to kind of keep that seamlessness going, to 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 allow the audience to feel that they're observing something and and that and that they're not being spoken to. They're almost eavesdropping or spying on a circumstance. And I think the best plays are plays in which you 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 forget yourself. You forget that you're sitting in the theater and you you don't you're not seeing the playwright's hand and much less his or her opinion. Right, right. And another way to do that is to not betray a character. If you've made a great character, everything that character does should be explained by your creation. And if the character then, you know, does a heel turn or a villainous turn or a virtuous turn in the service of, like, as I framed it, an argument or a debate, you've done something wrong. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, that again, for me, that comes with working with actors and working with the director and trying things and uh, realizing when that record skips, you know, and so that's, that's always, it, it never just comes out like as one piece. So when I saw the play, I didn't know anything about it except its name, and I knew uh, one of the actors and that the other actor's name was Glenn Davis, and that bothered me because it reminded me of the Celtics player, Big (laughs) Big Baby. Baby. But what can you do? What can you do? The guy's name is Glenn (laughs) Davis, you know? It could have been Zydrunas Algaskis. But, but... I didn't realize that, and the play is presented in four acts, and my uh, revelation went, oh, four acts. Huh, each one is a little more high stakes than the last. Oh, my God, it's a basketball game. (laughs) Now, now. Every review immediately said, I'm glad I didn't read the reviews, or everyone who's written about it is like, presented in four acts, like quarters of a basketball game. But that's not my exact question. My exact question was, I did think that the play went from being, oh, this is good. Oh, this is quite good. This is really good. Wow, this is great. That was my feeling at the end of every quarter. Mm -hmm. Was there, I mean, did you try to achieve that effect as one would during a basketball game? Or was this just a happy accident in how I, as the viewer, interpreted it? Well, I mean, think about it. It's like, it's if you watch a season of a TV show that you like, right? Yeah. The first couple episodes are good. They, then it gets better. Then it gets better. And then you you can't wait for that finale if if it's done right. And I think with yeah. this with this play, you, you you meet these guys and they meet each other in the first quarter. And yeah. by halftime, you're like, okay, I think we, I think this is a close game. But you know, you watch the third and fourth quarters, and it's just the stakes become higher, and there's more at stake for these characters, and you're more invested in in the game slash play. And so I think that's the nature of both sports and entertainment if if they're done well you know like 
I went, I've, I've had the opportunity to go to one Super Bowl the year we wrote Draft Day. I was so excited. I always wanted to go to the Super Bowl. It was the one that was here in New York. Seattle blew out Peyton Manning and the Broncos. I was so yeah. miserable. I was like, this yeah. is the worst game I've ever been to in my life. You know, it's a terrible game, unless you're a Seahawks fan. Right. But, you know, not every, yeah, like I have to tell you, you know, not every play, first of all, some plays are five acts and a lot of uh, Shakespeare's uh, mm -hmm. Uh, dramas, the final bloodbath isn't the best scene, right? It's sure. a soliloquy or other famous scene. And like a, even a lot of TV shows, you know, episode one of The Shield is the best episode. And they try <laughs> That's to true. achieve that true, yeah. the whole time. And I'm not suggesting you throw on the brakes or try to make act one or two any less high stakes, but that was at least how it played to me and I was impressed. I'm glad. That makes me happy. So the other thing I'll ask, and maybe this is too specific to the particular performance I saw, um, there are two sets in this play. I don't know. I don't know if this is ruining it. There are two sets, and all of Act 1 takes place in a wine bar, and then all of Act 2 takes place in a, like a bric-a-brac shop. Normally, a set change would happen during intermission, and you come back, the audience comes back during intermission, and there's a new set. But at this time, the set rotated mm -hmm. a little bit in darkness, but so that we could see it. And I was wondering about that I'm, I'm almost sure you're going to say this is me reading too much into it but then it hit me like a basketball game they flip sides at halftime <laughs> tell me if i'm wrong about that one <laughs> no you're not i mean that wasn't my intention but our director kenny leon uh who's you know one of the greatest directors living today in the american theater um he's also a great basketball fan lifelong lakers fan and he had a, he had a number of inspired ideas about how to present the play and one of the things that i had kind of written in the notes when i first wrote the play was that because it was structured like a game with four quarters one of the things that i was interested in is including in some way in some way shape or form the pageantry of going to an nba game when you go to an nba game it's a, it is a work of theater there's lights there's sound there's right. smoke and mirrors there's uh, music there's gymnastics you know there's there's interaction with the crowd there's 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 gambling you know like make a half court shot and win something there's so much going on besides the game there's a dj spinning and we have a dj spinning at our in our um, in our show, uh, before the show and at intermission and after the show. So we're trying to include that pageantry. And part of that, I think, was that spinning of the set and th that reveal. I enjoyed references to Cavaliers players of years gone by, perhaps a little obscure. Sure, Mark, Mark Price plays a role. The Bobby Sura reference was fantastic. I was, and you, you named, you, you shouted out the big Z. Yeah. I was waiting for maybe a Bingo Smith reference. I don't know how obscure you want it again. <laughs> like it's pretty obscure, man. <laughs> you know, th these guys are about, they're a little younger than me, these characters, you know? Yeah. And so like, I'm, I, I think I figure like I'm about 10 years older than them. And, and then my only, my memory only goes back so far. Um, although Matt, the character seems like a guy who probably kept a sports almanac under his bed and just memorized all the names and all the stats. That is true. I think that's in keeping with the characters. I don't know. This is, I wanted something that, you know, the play wasn't about, just like random references to Anderson Varejo or <laughs> random references to Hot Rod Williams. This is, this is the Cavaliers history that I celebrate. Mike, I had more in there. I did. Yeah? I, I had a lot in there that I ended up winnowing out because it started to feel a little too insider baseball-y. You know, I was like, <laughs> we don't need all these references. And, uh -huh. um, and I also, and I, you know, and then I, I also had, you know, a kind of joke about Kobe that I had to take out. 
because oh. I was like, after his tragic passing, I was like, wow, like I can't, you know, this this is not going to fly anymore. And you know, I I loved Kobe, but like like with all these characters and all these players, I enjoyed poking fun at the way people talk about them. So I was like, I had a guy kind of besmirch Kobe's reputation at one point, just his play, you know. Yeah. And um, and I was like, oh, that's gonna go. And you know, so it's it's funny about sports because you know reputations and and the way that we look at players can change right he's become sainted and now yeah. in our memory kobe always passed the ball and exactly. was just a giving teammate and lifted <laughs> everyone up exactly it was right. not a black hole exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah king james is now playing at the manhattan theater club it's open for at least a month these things if they're well received have a tendency to get extended maybe even transferred to other and bigger theaters or touring around the country so you could check it out rajiv joseph is the playwright behind King James. Thanks so much. Mike, it's a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And now the spiel. So as you heard from my interview with Rajiv, I liked his new play. But then again, I like basketball, as I would say most people do. I like theater, as I think most people do in some form, even if they don't go because of prices or access. There aren't too many popular entertainments, however, that I could think of when combined would result in less of a fan base than basketball and theater. I don't know, country music and Robin D'Angelo? I would say they would both have lots of fans, all the Dixie Chicks fans. Miming and NASCAR? I don't know, maybe. It would make Daytona easier on the ears, but miming is not that popular to begin with. But there are some of us out there, and as I was mentioning to Rajiv, there is this one example of the basketball Broadway overlap that I hold dear. I saw a wonderful musical about the NBA in a small theater in Chicago. And Daryl Morey, who's now the uh, GM of the 76ers, he loves musicals, apparently. Yeah, and he I've funded heard that it. about Daryl, yeah. Yeah, and some of the songs which are out there, there is a song sung by the David Stern character. It's fantastic. <laughs> like it's Indeed, it is. I got the date wrong. I think the show was put on in 2013. The name of the show was Lockout, the musical. It was about the labor strife that stopped play in the NBA in 2011. It was also about The Decision, which the play King James tackles. You know, LeBron James's announcement about where he'd be playing in the coming years. Did you hear that information? Dude, of course. LeBron is making his decision. And we're the new dark horse. We're the new dark This song, one of the best from Lockout the Musical, or I think it's officially sometimes called The Lockout a Musical. This song is called Sources. It captures the game of telephone slash disinformation that characterized NBA reporting then and now to a large degree. The actor who played LeBron didn't have as good a voice as some of his fellow cast members, but when the decision came, it delivered. Now it's time for my decision. This is tough. It's not Atlanta or New Jersey or Cleveland. It's not Chicago or New York or LA. 
It's not Orlando or Milwaukee or Houston. I'm sorry, Cleveland and New York and LA. Now you're down to two locations. Nope, just one. I'm taking my talents. I'm taking my talents. I'm taking my talents to South Beach. To South Beach. Listen, in 2013, this blew my mind. Like, I don't know, see, Guns and Ships might have wowed a Hamilton viewer on opening night of that particular rival musical. The creators of Lockout, or The Lockout, a musical, are two guys named Ben Fort, I think it's Fort, could be Forty, and Jason Gallagher. They had a background in composition. They work with Second City in Chicago. That's where I saw the show. Fort, Forty, is now a teacher in Fort Forty Worth. Gallagher, a podcast producer, NBA podcast, in fact. I was considering giving these guys a heads up that I would be talking about my love for their decade-old show, but I decided not to. There's something about the obscurity of the work that I enjoy. Not a diss to call it obscure. I don't revel in it in an ironic way or in a so-bad-it's-good way. To me, it is so good, it's good. Here is a showstopper sung by the David Stern character, the former commissioner of the NBA and driving force in making the game what it was, as he'll tell you. People say that they want justice, but they just want basketball. They want Rose, LeBron and Griffin, Durant, Kobe, and Chris Paul. But where is Michael Jordan now? Just a suit like you and me. LeBron and Kobe will give way to the next LeBron and Kobe. People say that they want justice, but they just want basketball. And since February 1984, I am basketball. Then begins Stern listing year after year of his career with references that every NBA fan gets. I'm the 1984 draft. The finals, 2-3-2-4 man. I'm the Celtics playing at home. I'm the Showtime Lakers and Hoosiers. I am 37 points per game. I'm the Hornets and I'm the Heat. I'm the Magic and the Timberwolves. I am tenths of seconds at the ends of games. They rhyme Shaktis with talking about practice. I'm telling you, I listen to this often. And I realize it is the most obscure piece of art that I regularly consume. Do you want to guess how many Spotify plays a month Lockout the Musical gets, according to their official statistics? Five. No, not 5,000. Five. I don't know if it counts different plays separately, but I well could be all five. I almost don't want to let you in on it. Less listen spike to say 12 and water down my importance in the Lockout ecosystem. The Lockout, a musical, does not have an attendant recap podcast. There is no Reddit page for The Lockout, a musical. No parasocial relationships available. Possibly no other fans judging by Spotify plays. But it's glorious. And with the tip of the hat to Ben, Jason, and inspiration from David Stern, LeBron, and Kobe, I can almost literally say it's all mine. (laughs) 
And that's it for today's show. Corey Warr is the producer of The Gist and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of lobster husbandry for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Boomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. Yeah.